Yeah. Okay. Okay, great. So good morning and welcome, Rachel. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. We're excited to have you on today. Uh, so why don't we just start by talking a bit about your childhood and growing up in Oroville, California, which I know very well, about 90 minutes north of Sacramento. Growing up in California, my sister went to Chico State, so I know all about Oroville. But Chico what, State, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, go Chico State. Um, so tell me a little bit about what experience you had during your childhood that inspired you to want to make the important changes in the world that you're doing today. So um, where I grew up is about 30 minutes away, actually, from the college town, but it's really it was really a world away um, in Oroville. I grew up in an all-black family, and so in Oroville, we lived in pretty segregated rural poverty, which was on the south side of Oroville particularly. And uh, if you happen to have been paying attention to the news a few years ago, you know that uh, there was a moment when the Oroville Dam almost broke. There was a big right. problem in the spillway. And of course, the area that would have been flooded was the low-lying south part of Oroville because that's also, I mean, it just was not that a good neighborhood. It was, you know, there were environmental toxins, there was drug abuse, um, and we were all primarily a family of women um, because um, most of the men in our family had been either killed or imprisoned by the police, which may sound a little dramatic, um, but the truth is that I've had three different male family members killed by the police without uh, any repercussions. So, and there's more video evidence that this kind of thing happens and is very common for most black folks. So, um, so being a family of women, the economic opportunities were really limited. Um, the good jobs were at the cannery and, um, it just felt like there wasn't enough money and money was kind of at the root of all of the problems and seemed to be able to offer a lot of solutions. And it seemed like there were all of these factors together, like issues of race, gender, economics, like even some of what we're now understanding as like issues of climate and environmental justice, were kind of all coming together to create a pretty traumatizing experience growing up that I was determined to leave and make better not only for myself, but for my family, for that broader community. And um, when I was able to lift my head up out of Oroville, I could see that it wasn't just my community, that it was a problem that we were having in a much bigger sense. Right, right. Nationwide. So mm -hmm. at 25, uh, skipping forward a bit, um, at 25, you founded Robichaudi and Philipson, a firm dedicated to transforming wealth into a tool that supports the well-being of people and the planet. And you chose a profession uh, that certainly lacks gender and racial diversity. It's a problem, Mark. We all know that. <laughs> um, so what, what intrigued you about wealth management and how did you think you would carry out your passions through financial services? So kind of, as I said before, money seemed to be at the center of a lot of the problems and was also often a problem solver for us. So I really wanted to understand it. I was a really curious kid. Um, saying I started my firm at the age of 25 sounds kind of unbelievable, um, at least back when I started in 2004. Um, nowadays, people have all types of networks that can help them do that. Um, but uh, for me, I really had to start my own firm because not only did I want to help other women, people of color, LGBTQ folks, um, I also wanted to do that in an environment that felt collaborative and welcoming. And that's just not the world that I was in, kind of in that sales driven world um, as a captive agent at a large, a couple of large firms. Um, and so 
it was that drive to really understand money and wealth and how it could solve problems for me and others. And then also just really wanting to be in a collaborative environment that made me start my own firm. But, you know, it didn't take very long. I started out in the industry uh, right around the dot-com bust and then, you know, went through the Great Recession and survived that. And I've seen what we're now calling a K-shaped recoveries both times, like both times the hourglass economy, so to speak, how basically the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And I just started to see that as many individuals and families as I could help, I they were just kind of a drop in the bucket and that the reasons for a lot of the troubles that my individual clients were having were these bigger systemic issues. And so I wanted to start moving on from servicing wealth and helping individuals and really start what I called like directing wealth, being an asset manager, aggregating wealth and using those to collectively start fixing what wasn't working. Interesting. And so you, um, I know that uh, you started at Asina, um, and you launched a exchange traded fund, Adesina Social Capital. I'm sorry, Adesina Social Justice All Cap Global, uh, and the ticker's JSTC. And you launched that in December of last year. Is that right? I did. Yeah, or we uh, did. I should be more honest. We did. It was a okay. Very large okay. team effort. Well, congratulations, and um, and I know your website says that. Um, you use community source wisdom to educate and mobilize other investors with campaigns that amplify the needs, perspectives, and voices of impacted communities through the financial system. So a little bit of what, what you were just talking about, what, what your passions led you to. So can you drill down a little bit into how you generate this wisdom? Because I just find this fascinating, the sort of the granular level that you go to to do your research and screenings. Yeah, absolutely. So everything is really driven by our social justice investment criteria. So basically, that just answers the question of what are you focusing on here? You say you're focusing on racial justice, economic, climate, gender justice. What are you actually focusing on? And rather than thinking that we already know, we actually go uh, to organizations that are by and for the communities we intend to impact. So in terms of racial justice, rather than assuming we know what issues to work on, we actually develop partnerships with the Movement for Black Lives, First Peoples Worldwide, um, organizations that are actually led by and for those communities, or when it's economic justice, it's the Poor People's Campaign and One Fair Wage. And what they do is both help us understand what the metrics should be, Um, And they also are often campaign partners that help us gather the data. Uh, And those social justice organizations are often partnering with us in the industry-wide investor campaigns that get other investors to use the data that we're using um, and focus on the issues that we're focusing on. And really, that just comes down to listening to them and saying, like, what actually matters to you as a community? So is it working with these other organizations that you're able to do this at scale because it, it, I imagine it takes a lot of time to, to do these, uh, these screenings and understanding of these, these mandates. We have over um, 50 different individual uh, screens when you get down to it. And that really can't be done by a team um, in our industry of of 13. But what we do have and leverage is the work that's already being done in those communities 
and we choose to listen to them around the issues that already matter to them. So there's already movements happening. What's not happening is that investors aren't listening to those movements about how investors can support them. Instead, in finance, we have this habit of thinking, oh, we know how to solve the problem or we know what it means to scream for that particular thing. And there's a deep amount of humility that says, actually, like we don't know. Will you tell us? Here are the tools in our toolkit. Will you tell us what's available? How should we be screening investments? How should we be influencing corporate behavior? And yeah, when you're working with issues that already matter to them and work that's already being done, the ability to scale um, just magically opens up. Right. Well, that, that's that's interesting. Uh, can you? I, I noticed that your fund. I think it's around fifty million now. Is that right? Just a, just a few months. Mm-hmm. In, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's great to see. Um, um, you're at. Uh, I noticed if if I'm looking at other other ETFs that are in the similar category, and I'm I'm sure they're doing their research differently. But you're at about eighty nine basis points on the fund. Is your is your cost a bit higher because of some of the deep social screening that you're doing? Absolutely. And, um, you know, investors in JSTC are actually paying a premium for several different valuable differentiators from traditional ESG and impact products. Um, We do use commercial ESG data for things that you can use that for, like identifying tobacco companies and companies that make weapons and firearms, for example. I didn't need to go to community uh, sourced wisdom for that. But really understanding uh, what's underpinning mass incarceration or serial sexual harassment in the workplace. That's where you really, on these um, more nuanced issues of justice, that's where you really want to go to those impacted communities. And we believe in supporting those communities and working with us and also in being a regenerative business that isn't trying to extract the maximum work for the least amount of pay. We primarily employ women, black and indigenous people of color. Um, And so we don't actually want to extract the maximum work for the smallest amount of wages. And so as a result, that means our expenses are higher directly because we're a regenerative business and we're just doing different data collection work. That means that we have the most comprehensive social justice screen that's available for public equities. And we also have what we believe are some pretty unique risk management and first mover kind of advantages, which are that we deeply believe that the issues that are raised by social justice movements today may be the early indicators of future material risk factors for publicly right. traded companies. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that uh, in a second because I, I think there's some misconceptions out there about sacrificing alpha in portfolios if you if you're going in in the ESG route but mm-hmm. before I get before I get there um, you know it's 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 hard to open up any of the uh, industry publications these days and not see something about ESG and ESG investing criteria and all that the demand for ESG investing is undeniable money flowing into US funds categorized as sustainable hit a record 51 billion. Mm-hmm. 2020, more than double that record of 21 billion in 2019, and and many believe that the COVID pandemic, as well as sociopolitical events like the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, have played a large part in this increase. But yet another influential factor is the growing number of women investors, as many believe women are largely focused on investing in high quality portfolios of companies whose products and services provide solutions to environmental and social challenges. Do you feel like 
I know you work with advisors out there, financial advisors. That's largely our audience here on this podcast. Do you feel like advisors are struggling with answering questions their clients have about how their portfolios impact social justice values? Oh, so much. Uh, I think that the question of impact measurement is a really uh, deep one that I hear from advisors on a regular basis. And to be perfectly honest with you, and this is a bit of a critique on our industry, um, I believe it's so hard to measure impact when impact isn't necessarily the primary thing that you're going for in your portfolio. So if what you're doing, um, if what you end up doing is you're trying to meet client demand and you're trying to show that you're working on something, but really underneath the hood, you're just kind of like a financial firm that's like screening out like a few of the worst actors, then it's going to be really hard to show impact. But the core of what we do at Adesina is about making large scale systemic change. And so um, it's really interesting. Like if, if uh, it ultimately our impact on serial sexual harassment in the workplace comes directly from those who are most impacted. So for example, you know, we started the force the issue coalition that tracks companies and which of them have this harmful practice in place that's been identified by gender justice groups as kind of like underpinning serial sexual harassment that started the Me Too movement. You know, when we started, there were only a handful of companies that had publicly ended the practice. Now we have almost 400. That's over 10 million workers that aren't silenced by these unfair processes. And I think that when your primary target is the social justice that you're seeking, then I think demonstrating impact becomes very easy. It does have to shift, though. It has to shift away from how many shareholder resolutions did I file because that's just about delivering impact on my individual portfolio. Um, when you're really going after systemic change, you have to start looking for systemic indicators of impact. And those end up being things like narrative shift and the changes in stock prices for companies that belong to entire industries, for example. Right, right. Yeah. So this is, um, yeah, what my, I wanted to lead to another question is just how do you how do you measure the beneficial impact that Adesina is having on communities? Because that's really what the, is is what you're saying, right? That's Absolutely. what this is about. And so, what are what can you give me some examples of other measures that that you're using to to determine whether uh, uh, you know you're actually having an impact on the communities that uh, and, and through the investments that you're making. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting, The while the investments matter, the investments themselves matter considerably, what we're able to bring to the table with these social justice movements is our position as investors. That allows us to speak to companies, and it allows us to speak to the companies and make the business case for doing the right thing. So, for example, um, one fair wage has been working on ending the subminimum wage, which is a relic of slavery and disproportionately impacts women, people of color, African-American workers, and, you know, really contributes to poverty wages. One thing that um, the campaign didn't have before we came along was this investor statement that basically said like, hey, this is just bad business. Here are all the mm -hmm. reasons. One of the most amazing things for us is to really hear from One Fair Wage about the impact that it's made kind of across all arms of the work that they're doing. So what we do is we actually go back to the folks that told us how we could help and we say, is this helping? And it's been tremendous. One of the ancillary side effects that we didn't realize was going to happen is that actually a number of lawmakers picked up 
the arguments for the business case. And, you know, we heard some of them arguing it on the Senate floor the most, you know, most recently. Um, So what we're really bringing to bear is like the ability to make the investor case against these business practices that are actually bad for the businesses as well as society at large. Right. Well, you know, it's I've talked to several advisors over my career who legitimately believe that they want to make an impact in their communities. They legitimately want to avoid the bad companies that are investing in things that are detracting from the of of the of the mission of of their firm of what Addison is doing. Um, And in the past, they said, well, but at the same time, I have to perform for my clients. That's the reason they hired me or one of the reasons they hired me. Um, and I think there was a narrative in the past that if you didn't have these bad companies in your portfolio, that there's a possibility your performance would have suffered. But there's a lot of things, and you mentioned this earlier, that uh, by following ESG criteria, they may avoid companies who practice signal, whose practices could signal a risk as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that is becoming more and more apparent of what some of those risks are. But so how do you at Adesina strike this solid balance between delivering on the promises of investing to re- reflect social justice, but while still delivering performance? Well, first of all, I mean, I don't believe that efficient market hypothesis is perfect, but we are far more in the school of um, keep as expenses as low as that you can and really try to deliver the overall performance of the market. And so as you'll see, our fund has over 800 different holdings. We start off with 9,000, but we're doing a lot of screening and portfolio optimization at the end um, to really come down to that, like, you know, under 900 uh, list of securities. And I do believe that, um, rigorous screening, but if you still have a robust, broadly diversified portfolio, you can deliver the returns of the market. What I think that um, some of the trouble has been for advisors who really feel like it's a trade-off, because for us, it's not a trade-off. They're not mutually exclusive, like social justice and returns, where we actually um, believe that we're adding value um, and see that happening. Um, I mean, even just last year, you know, the contributors to mass incarceration and our unjust criminalization of black and brown communities, um, the private prison sector, you can see that, you know, the S&P was up over 1600 and, you know, they were down over 60%. Right. So, I mean, like you can just kind of start to see, Oh, okay. If we had been listening from the beginning, you know, maybe that was something that would have made right. a difference. I, I think the trouble came in when things happened, like um, during the Great Recession, the recovery out of that, the only positive returns came from like hydraulic fracturing in North America. And people really felt like, oh, I have to have that in the portfolio. If I don't have it, my returns are going to lag. Well, that's true in the short term. But really, oil and gas ended up being the biggest losers of the decade. Right. So it's really about what term of time you're looking at. We are long term investors looking for sustainable returns. And we know that that only comes from companies that have sustainable practices in all the realms of you know, racial, gender, economic and climate justice. So ultimately, I think that the, the time band they're looking at may be a little bit too short if they're long term investors. This is something that we're watching, you know, play out um, in the short term. You can be misaligned with the market. Right. If if all you can do is get hydraulic fracturing returns and that's not something that you're willing to invest in. Well, short term, when you're when you when you're short term, you're limiting a lot of a lot of choices, a lot of uh, mm-hmm. uh, things that should be taken into consideration. And so uh, that's a struggle, I think, with our industry is that we all talk about long term investing, but the media and 
every critic out there is so focused on the short term. So I it's completely so true. But it really comes down to things we all learned, right? This comes down to things that we all learned, which is managing your clients' expectations, right? Uh, creating and sticking to a discipline. It's interesting. I'm in social justice investing, but when it comes right down to it, like the the bare bones of finance are what's going to ensure that in the long run, social justice investing is working out. So. Exactly. You know, in an interview, you once said, Rachel, that we have we have at Asina have our own list of publicly traded companies that we've been excluding from our portfolios for years. We never thought there was a reason to share that, but now we are saying here are the companies we don't invest in and why. Um, and, and I and I think that's great that you're, I don't know, the level of transparency is awesome, I think. Uh, but ha- have you, what is the response you've gotten from some of these companies or have you gotten a response? And um, have you seen firms react in a way that actually gets them to take a hard look at the problems that you're, you've brought to light? So, The impact um, has been first and foremost from financial advisors, like particularly after George Floyd's murder and the racial justice reckoning um, that's happened and continues to happen in our country. I think advisors are really hungry for what's the measurement here? Like, how do we make sure we're actually having an impact on racial justice? And, you know, publicly traded companies want to talk about diversity, equity and inclusion, which is really wonderful. It is important. And it's also a bit like giving nutritional advice to someone who needs a tourniquet for a wound. I mean, really, we have to work on this carceral system that's um, unjust and underpinning um, the many, many systemic injustices that we're seeing. And um, and I'm going to have to edit this out. I lost track. I want to make sure I'm answering your question. I'm one of those terrible people that doesn't have their own messaging actually wants to make sure I'm answering your question. Can you remind me what the question was? Um, so just in terms of the companies, um, that you're not investing in, um, what is, what has been the response from these companies and have you seen firms react in a way that actually gets them to take a hard look at the problems you brought to light? One of the most interesting things is uh, to kind of take a look at that question of what kind of impact are you having if what you're doing is, uh, divesting and rigorous divesting, um, is something that can't really have an impact on your own. But what it can do is if you work in community, so not just with those social justice organizations, but in community with other investors, they aren't our competitors. They're actually people that we're working side by side with. You can actually build solidarity around issues and have an impact. So one of um, the things that we enjoy doing with groups like the Racial Justice Investing Coalition and the Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility is you have folks who actually are holding shares of the companies that are uh, perpetrating injustices um, for the purpose of shareholder engagement and activism. And then you have the folks like us who are divesting. If we're organizing investors to divest and they're actually holding the shares, one of the things that we can do is be in conversation with each other. And we've had uh, folks from those coalitions go to companies that are participating in mass incarceration and say, hey, we have the shareholder resolution. You have this subdivision of what you're doing that's supporting the private prison industry, for example, in the United States. Um, we're putting forth this resolution. Do you know that we're part of a multi-billion dollar coalition that is divesting from you only because you have this one small division? So we end up actually being able to be the carrot and the stick. Um, but that only works if you actually are investing in collaboration um, uh, with other, yeah, with other folks. 
I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, it, it's, it's really, it must be really cool to see that movement and, and it materialize in a message to a company and then have them do something about it, assuming they do something about it. Um, have, just out of curiosity, have you invested in companies that were originally on this list of bad firms or, or firms that to, to invest from, but, but, you know, address the issue and then you invested in their company after that? Yes, actually, there have been a few. Um, you know, when we started out, the total number of companies was a few hundred that passed all of our screens. And we have been thrilled to see that number grow. Companies are actually paying attention to these metrics. And what we're finding is that um, as they pay attention to those metrics and pass all of our screens, they're actually able to be included in the portfolio. Um, and so uh, I would not say that there are many. Um, and that's probably because what we found is that many of the quote unquote bad actors are bad actors along a, a continuum of different issues. Um, but where there were actors where there was just one or two you know, specific things that they um, weren't passing on, we've seen um, as they were able to make those adjustments, um, have them enter the portfolio. And it's been it's been really gratifying to see that change yeah, and actually right. have that kind of impact. But we can't do it on our own. I mean, even in our fund, right, which is just under 50 million, it's something that only really makes sense. We only really have the ability to make that kind of systemic change if we're willing to work in community with other investors and build solidarity around these issues. Well, I want to talk to you about advocates in a second, but uh, we're going to take okay. a short break and we'll be right back with Rachel Robichotti at Adesina right after this. All right. All right. Okay. Um, so, Rachel, we were talking right before the break. Uh, I, I use the word advocates, but um, you know what? What advocates within the industry or even outside the industry do you need to to partner with to scale this message and, and this mission of Adesina? Well, we're both in the same industry. You know what I know, which is that the larger uh, the assets, the larger the voice, right, that you have and right. the ability to impact corporate behavior and to command attention in the industry. Um, we have an amazing investment thesis um, where you have both the social and financial returns. We hear over and over again that the issue is not actually with um, what it is that we're up to from an investment or social perspective. We're running into some systemic barriers and the systemic barriers mostly show up in the due diligence process. And if you'll let me just take a step back, it's not because um, when you diligence our firm, there's something wrong. It's actually because our industry has a due diligence system that results in keeping assets in the hands of those who already manage them. And that is not women. It's not black and indigenous folks or other people of color. In fact, firms that are majority owned by women or people of color combined, and this is if you're majority owned, are less than 1% of all asset management firms. And the reality is that when an advisor is interested in us and they go to their, um, like if they work at a larger firm and they go to their um, compliance department and start a diligence process, we get really basic questions like, what are your assets under management? Oh, we don't look at anyone who has less than 200 million or 500 million in their strategy. Oh, we don't work with anyone that has less than three years of a track record. And the reality is that a specific three-year track record or 200 million in assets or 500 million, whatever the threshold is, isn't a direct um, assessment of the acumen of the advisor or the fit. What it really is is a shortcut 
that um, allows you to eliminate certain folks from consideration. And because of the history of systemic bias in our country and in our industry, that's just keeping money in the hands of the same players. So what we've developed is um, in collaboration with other Black and Indigenous and people of color asset managers is something called the Due Diligence 2.0 Commitment. And it's really a roadmap. It's nine specific points. It's an alternative and equally robust process of evaluating um, these managers and not systemically excluding them from processes. It's really basic things like what are some reasonable alternatives to a track record? Um, truly assess risk. What happens, for example, with a public equities manager in a fund? If uh, is assets under management a really good risk metric? You know, for example, if Adesina were to close, okay, there's a pro rata distribution of the securities that are in the fund to the investors. Like, is assets under management truly a risk here? Right. So it just it. it asks folks who are doing the due diligence to take a closer look. So if you go to diligencecommitment.com, folks can take a closer look at that whole set of nine criteria and sign on and, uh, you know, take on the sacred due diligence process at your firm and uh, vow to make it one that doesn't systemically exclude us. Well, part of that too is, is, um, is really lobbying or getting the the firms, the the gatekeepers, if you will, the custodians, the broker dealers, and, and others out there that uh, will will not just allow you to be on their platform, but also help promote and, and market your business. And if they continue to perpetuate this marketing of if you only have two hundred million or three years of experience or what have you, this problem will continue to get bigger um, if, if they don't change the way they look at due diligence. Is that, That's is that right? absolutely true. Yes. And I think we're um, it's it's reputational risk. I mean, what do they say? No one's going to fire you for having invested in Goldman Sachs or some other large asset manager. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, well, that one just didn't do so well. Um, and so what I think we all have to be willing to do is something new for a different outcome. It's, it's funny. I tell people all the time. I'm like, so the due diligence process that we have, if it's been doing such a great job of managing risks, how did we end up in a pandemic with a racial justice reckoning and a climate that's on the brink of disaster? Um, and I'm like, okay, we were managing certain risks, but not others. What are the risks of not allowing new actors into this space? Because we're only going to find new solutions from new people who may not be at the center of power and systems right now, but probably need to be if we're going to find some novel solutions. Well, let's talk about, let's transition to something that talking about a position of power. Um, you know, I read a stat the other day, by 2030, American women are expected to control much of the 30 trillion in financial assets that baby boomers currently possess. This was a study by McKinsey. Um, Sergio, Sergio Armati, who's the CEO, <clears throat> excuse me, the CEO at UBS said the biggest untapped resource in the marketplace is women. And, um, for RIAs nationwide, financial advisors now, which now is the time to develop that next generation of female talent who will serve financial advisors. Um, and, but the problem of hiring women and people of color in the workplace to me, just doesn't seem to be improving much. Um, at a financial advisor level, how can these business owners make a measurable impact in increasing and embracing diversity in the workplace? 
Well, I, I think there's a lot of folks out there who actually truly have this commitment because they know it's good business and also they want to be part of the solution. And then they're going back and fishing in the same pond, hoping to mm-hmm. right to catch something different. And the trouble is that if we're um, majority not women or people of color um, and you're putting out your job announcements kind of in those same pools of folks, you, you know, you are going to find that your applicant pool isn't very diverse. Um, what we've done at our firm and what we consistently recommend that advisors do is look outside of finance. Right. Make your right. network bigger. And then you have to go look for transferable skills and tell people, oh, you would be really good at this. And I'm willing to create a point of entry and a path for development. So if if you're actually willing to go tell people you would be really good at this and I'll support you through making that transition. Um, we have had the most amazing growth in individuals and as a firm by hiring people on in that way and giving them the ability to, to expand the set of what's been possible for them. In their I saw, yeah. And I saw this term the other day, I think it was called greenwashing um, where firms have taken some steps, but haven't put their shoulder behind um, diversity in the, in the workplace. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think a lot of it has to do with what you just said is the, they're fishing from the same darn pond. And I, I would argue too, that another issue large uh, firms are having now is, is the expectations they have on that new hire, uh, could mm-hmm. be female or male for that matter of whether it's sales expectations or, or, or some sort of growth within a certain short period of time. And a lot of these people aren't able to do that. So having longer term expectations goes back to what you're saying. If you're fishing outside of the financial services pond and looking at other careers that could transition over, you got to have longer term, a longer term horizon for the development of that person and to be able to provide them with mentors and others. And I don't think our industry as long term focus, (laughs) we were were, here (laughs) we go again. As long-term focused as we always say we are, we're very short-term focused in some areas and hiring and talent development is no exception. No, it's very true. And in the end, I, I mean, if you, you can look at whether I'm talking about reforming the due diligence process or we're talking about hiring, the thing that it actually requires for folks who want different outcomes is to put the work in. It's like, no, go take a deep look at the due diligence process, create a point of entry, create a path for development, go find the people. So what it actually uh, requires is that the folks who may not necessarily feel very privileged, but by the fact that you're able to be in financial services and have made it this far, there's something working for you here. Um, It's asking them to take that privilege and actually put it out into the world to, to extend themselves. And I know that that's extremely hard to do when we all have so many demands upon our time. And it's absolutely what's going to be necessary to change the face of our industry. And actually also just to make the systemic change that we want to make in the world. Exactly. Well, my last question for you is, and I, and I read a comment from you in a recent interview where you said you feel more hopeful than you've ever been about the possibilities for racial justice in this country. And that's great to hear. But what what is what's prompted you to feel this way? Well, first, I'll just say I grew up in the '80s, so colorblind was the thing. There was no, t- and I, you know, grew up in very rural um, environment. Like talking about race, uh, class, gender, these were not things that we talked about, and that was seen as polite. But as a result, what happened was that there's kind of this. Um, 
de facto assumption that if you weren't doing well, it's your own fault, that somehow a deficiency in you rather than a deficiency in the way that systems are working, um, that actually impacts all of us negatively. And what's changed is that rather than just focusing on individual sexism, individual cases of racism, looking for bad people to like, right, eliminate from powerful positions, what I feel like has really happened more recently is that we're talking about the systems. And, um, you know, our country was founded um, by people that were very traumatized and never resolved it coming over from Europe and really felt like there was a lot of scarcity and they had to do what they had to do to survive. They built systems that were still um, working on. It's like being sat on a conveyor belt. And if you stay on the conveyor belt, it's going to keep taking you where it's always taking you. What we have to do is actually stand up and walk the other direction. But you have to actually look down and say, oh, I am on a systemically, you know, oppressive conveyor belt. And I think that's what makes me hopeful is that even though it's taken the death of George Floyd or um, the Me Too movement and like so much trauma has come out of these events, what it's really caused is for us to wake up and look and say, oh, we have to stand up and walk in the other direction. We have to create new systems. And it's through those new systems that we can create a new world. And that's well, what we have to do. And, and I think I think that's I completely agree with you. And the evidence, I mean, we talked about the 50 billion in ESG investing. I mean, it's this is a real movement and, and there are differences being made. And certainly what you're doing at Asina and everything you've done through your your young career, because you got a lot of work to do. I know, I know <laughs> um, is you're making a difference in the industry, but more importantly, in, in society. And um and uh, I, you should be very proud of that. I know you are. And uh, best of luck to you with your with your fund and everything that you're doing with your staff. Um, and I hope that we will come across each other again very soon and we'll see even more impact that you're making. So uh, thank you very much, Rachel, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me on your show and uh, for being along with me on this journey. OK, well, keep up the great work. All Have right. a great day. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That was awesome. Thank you so much. Great. Yay. It worked. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the beauty of editing, we'll be able to go in there and, and do what, uh, do it.